Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast. I am so pleased to be able to share this discussion that I had with Thomas Hansen, one of the greatest baritones of our time. I talked to Thomas on Zoom and as many of you will know, he is a very big advocate of digital technology. We started off by talking about Zoom. Thomas really likes using Zoom. We talked about the impact that digital technology and digital platforms like Zoom are currently having on the classical music industry in this current time, how this is impacting learning, education and participation as well as Thomas's current teaching with various institutions and projects. Thomas has a series with Idagio at the moment, a fantastic classical music streaming platform in which he's going to be exploring the art of song over the next few weeks. Thomas has a wealth of knowledge and experience in art song and so we briefly touched on some of the questions that he's going to be exploring such as what is it that makes classical song different from pop song and what is it that inspires a composer to set beautiful music to the poem or the text given and vice versa. We also discussed music criticism, something that Thomas has been accustomed to throughout his career and Thomas shared many fascinating insights from his long and illustrious career with some of the greatest artists of our time, from Nicholas Harnoncourt to Daniel Barenboim and Leonard Bernstein. Many thanks to Jenna at Lenny Studio for very kindly helping to arrange this interview over the last few months and also to Thomas for very kindly taking the time out of his extremely busy schedule to talk to me. So without further ado, here is my interview with Thomas Hampson. I find Zoom just amazing, but I was looking at it with um, my colleague in Manhattan, Manhattan School of Music, Christiane mm. Orto, who lost her very courageous battle to cancer this year, okay. unfortunately. But but we were looking at learning platforms, learning with you know kind of classroom and so forth. And Zoom was a, we said, oh, what a, what a marvelous communication. Back we had actual contact with the with the people they're building. We said we find it. Uh, a far better platform than Skype and certainly better than FaceTime. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Apple never got FaceTime together because okay. it should be like this. Okay. But Zoom anyway. So um, I'm glad we have Zoom and they have, and there's so many wonderful bells and whistles. I have a full blown license. I'm going to do a webinar with my students later this week. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I may never leave my room here. I tell you, you know, yes, we're staying, we're staying busy. Uh, it, it feels, and I've tried to treat it a little bit more like a, a sabbatical, but I'm putting a, a, a very positive spin on it. Like everyone else, I am just simply unemployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the month of, month of March where two or three very special concerts um, in various exotic places in the world, and they were canceled as I got there. Mm-hmm. All the teaching that I was to do in Paris and in Heidelberg uh, was, of course, canceled with the festivals. 
uh, in the festival, the leader, um, the leader, the leader, the lead, uh, or the Heidelberg Fruiting Festival was of course canceled. So that was the concerts gone in April. April and May, I should have been here in rehearsal for a commission, new commission world premiere of an opera by Stefan Wirth called The Girl with the Pill Earring. Mm. Very exciting project. But in fact, Zurich decided to postpone that to the winter of 2022. Mm -hmm. So if the Vilnius Festival doesn't cancel June, uh, I may very well, you know, have, have another work. But I pretty much put a big red X through the rest of March and all of April. Most of the countries that I would have anything to do with are in what they call lockdown, severe travel restrictions. And of course, more than travel restrictions, there's just no... There are no gatherings of people. There are no public events for which I would be useful. So until that landscape changes, I am unemployed. Yes, I'm busy with Idajo. Yes, I'm busy with my with my students. We're trying to, you know, we're building a new platform for them. I'm sort of coordinating between the Lead Academy that I'm the artistic director of in Heidelberg, as well as the Schubertwoche in Boulez, which is in partnership with with Heidelberg, and that's all sort of motored through my or with my coordinated through my foundation, Hamson Foundation. So yes, there are things there are things to do, and it's it's fun to keep busy, and it's also very exciting to try and see this positive side of this is, and we've we've opened up for our general public, a far greater, wider, deeper online uh, presence, communication, availability, access. Uh, so I think we should try and get that right. Um, just, you know, I, I think that playing the trumpet on the balcony is, is charming as everyone else. But I think for those of us that have been interested in and busy with digital education platforms for some years now, uh, it behooves us to to take this new awareness and this new this new involvement, as it were, to a new and better fundamental level. And that's what I'm trying to do with Idajo. Mm. I'd be really interested to talk a little bit more about the partnership that you have with Idajo. I actually watched the um, the live stream that you did last week. I really enjoyed that. So, could you tell us a little bit more about your partnership? What you're aiming to do? And I hear that you've got some special guests lined up over the next few weeks. <laughs> yes, I think I think uh, I can't announce the special guests. Oh, <laughs> be. I wish I could, but I can't until it's completely confirmed. The special guests. Um, I can tell you this: that that the, the the ladies are concerned about being camera ready. Oh, oh, uh, okay. As soon as, okay. as soon as as soon as they exactly as soon as they sign off on camera ready, we can go. Um, right now, uh, you know, Idajo, I've been involved with Idajo since they launched. Uh, Tildian Sukovic, the founder and CEO, is a, is a friend and colleague. And um, I appreciate having, you know, the inside, um, being part of the inside loop of, of artists that are involved with Idajo that give feedback and, and, and are somewhat ambassadors. But I think we're going to a new level. Idajo has always been interested, one, in video. Uh, uh, and, and also in artist-customer partnerships, um, meaning providing a, an online platform where artists can really do what they want to do and, and have that as their go-to place uh, for, for their public. 
and 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 also enjoy this catalog that is already there with Idajo. Idajo has an enormously deep catalog uh, that's already available, and and I hope to help them exploit that a little bit. It's quite fun to drop the needle and and see composers' names that I've never knew of. And somebody said the other day, there's like nine or ten thousand composers on on Idajo, and I went. You mean there's nine or ten thousand classical music composers? <laughs> so if I'm if I'm a little bit dumbfounded by that, certainly our general public is. The the the, the timeline for a lot of this got, of course, bumped up, and it seemed a very good time to simply start trying. So I would say everything that's going on in Idaja right now qualifies for very high quality beta or beta. Um, I think we'll all get better at it. Um, some of us have more experience being online or especially with the radio shows I did. So it's not, not such a weird thing for me to talk to a blue dot in my screen. <laughs> uh, but the idea is, is that Idonjo Live is literally that. Um, you know, whether it's, it should not feel overproduced. It should feel very accessible. It should feel very, yeah, spontaneous in the sense that you're, you're having uh, – at this point, a one-way conversation with the person I watched, Ivan Fisher, sitting at his pianos and just talking and, and playing things out of his memory as thoughts came about Mahler One. Uh, as a musician, I responded to that quite beautifully. It, it felt like being in his dressing room, him wanting to talk about Mahler One before he went out for rehearsal or something like that. And I think people will, res will respond to that. Um, we need to build in the interactive layer so that people can ask questions in real time, you know, I have two essential different, essentially different programs, and it's, I'm feeling a little bit like a, a, a disc jockey at the moment, but I'm, I'm not. The, the the Tuesdays with Thomas was sort of a was sort of a clever uh, title that we we laid on it, and it should be, you know, really probably more like the WQXR drop by, you know, visiting artists kind of thing. And, and mm. tonight I'm going to have Fred Plotkin of WQXR and singer world uh, fame as an interviewer and uh, I think what he calls himself as a pleasure activist, which we'll get into tonight. So Fred will be my first guest tonight and we're just gonna talk about the world of music, our various backgrounds, music that we love, singers that we love, some old singers that should never be forgotten. Uh, and of course this new world that we're in, that we're all exploring. What does that mean to the concert going public, the opera going public? You know, and it's the idea behind the Tuesdays with Thomas is literally 20 minutes to a half an hour of drop by, have a glass of wine before you go to the theater or something. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, if we were in the same, if we were in New York, I'd say, oh, well, I know you got the opera at eight, but why don't, why don't you just pop by my apartment? Let's have a drink. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. It should have that sort of easy thing about it. On Thursday, much like the other artists that are already online or have done this, and I started with the Mahler, Father uh, and it's more program notes. It's mm -hmm. more an opportunity to talk about, uh, for me, I will probably concentrate more on song. And, and Thursday, I'm going to discuss in some detail what makes the difference of classic song versus pop song or normal mm -hmm. song, or mm -hmm. why do we call it that? What is art song? What, what is melodie, pigeon, uh, canto, lead? You know, that they just break down and then, and then probably land with some marvelous Schubert songs because I referred to Schubert in the Mahler program. So I think every, every once a week, I'll have sort of the world of song through my eyes and I can invite people at one and so forth. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, 
it's it there's a thing is we're not inventing the wheel here we should be able when when um social restrictions are lessened i think we should try and get into the desktop concerts like npr i think those are unbelievably fun mm-hmm. uh and cross genre when i'm back and uh i think we are reaching out to them when i'm back in uh, america for the met in december that we could do one. I think it'd be great fun. I think it's a wonderful idea. So, and, but these things, you know, if these things have been bubbling. What, what has happened with this crisis is that we have expanded the, the online platform awareness exponentially to the public that we had hoped, always hoped would be, you know, moderately interested in and pass by. Our challenge, it seems to me, is a couple of significant challenges. I don't think anybody has a crystal ball. But in my opinion, to date, everything that's been getting a momentum in terms of online presence has been augmenting an analog production of festivals or opera houses or or symphonies, whatever, which is wonderful. Mm. Now that the analog has been stopped, we of course have this phase of, of jump up and, and that's where we have everything being released online and people have a lot more availability. We're going to have to put part of that genie back in the bottle, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is going to be a real challenge. But more importantly, I think, I think all of the, all of all presenters, whether they're concert presenters, whether it's Heidelberg or Fuhling or Lincoln Center, are going to be compelled to, to see themselves as, as online and analog producers. And that doesn't seem so, that, I mean, that maybe sound obvious. In, in the world of online education, that's called synchronous and asynchronous teaching. Mm-hmm. Synchronous is when you're actually online teaching somebody, talking to them, and there's interactivity about it in real time. It's, and asynchronous is, is even, even the televised class that is not interactive, but something that you can at some time decide to have a look at or work with. And in, in online education, both platforms are equally important. Mm-hmm. So that mentality and, and all of its drop downs, I think are going to be, are going to be, or, or what I meant, what I think we have the opportunity now to really explore, really explore what the business model for these things can become. I don't know, you know, right now I I'm treating, like I said, this time as a kind of sabbatical. And this sabbatical is giving me time to, you know, see what potentially is possible. Idaja was a wonderful partner. Uh, my other organizations from Manhattan School of Music, Michigan, uh, University of Michigan, in the educational world, and then Lead Academy or the Heidelberg Fuhling and the Barenboim Said Academy and the Hamsam Foundation. Those are my sort of pools how, how can I find a better synergy to be of use to the young people studying? That's, that's my mandate right now and challenge. And it's fun. I'm, I'm learning Instagram. I'm, I'm, I know I have an Instagram channel and Catherine <laughs> takes care of that very nicely. Uh, but I've never actually tried to deal. You know, I had a crash course reintroducing myself into my Facebook okay. page which is a little frightening. An awful lot of people there. All these things are a little bit like, you know, the, the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And and I, being the kind of person I am, and, and, and I love being accessible, but part of being accessible is that I can also define where I'm intensely private. 
Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and what I find myself, you can be very, and I'm sure all people, everybody will recognize this. You can be, you can just sit here for five or six hours and the day goes by and you think, well, how can it be five o'clock in the afternoon? I just sat down after breakfast. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also a, a world that I think we need to address. And I like to address that with my younger colleagues as well. Time management is a, is a, very acute question in studying anything, much less music. So as it all, as you see, it all ties together. So I think it's quite fascinating. That's so interesting. And I think that you've, um, you've answered what I was going to ask you about how the classical music industry is currently using digital technology at this current time. I mean, do you think that it's going to be a temporary measure? Or as you said, do you think that the digital and the traditional methods are going to coexist? Or do you think that maybe we'll all get accustomed in this phase to using digital technology? It might be difficult for people to go back into the concert halls. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of those. And yeah. I think probably I think probably where we're actually going to end up in a year, we haven't thought about yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would hope that I mean, it's been interesting in this in the in the digital world and, and the gadgetry that has been invented. And of course, you know, I, being a Mac person, I'm very I'm very proud of of that development line. I think the iPad, do iPad Pro, even the 219. I mean, we got the 2020. I haven't even touched it, uh, but the the 2019 iPad Pro is an amazing instrument. It's a it's a small production board. Uh, the iPhone 11 camera is as good as any camera I ever personally owned. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a DJI uh, Pocket, whatever those things are called, mm-hmm. and the quality is about the same. It's it's perhaps in term if you have a, a handheld uh, monitor, it's a slightly more still professional program. But the apps mm-hmm. that go with it, there are there are apps that for for video and for photo that augment what is already very good. You know, all of this stuff has become cheaper, more accessible, and self-production is, is wonderful. I think that's going to really kick off more. I think that clearly what in the social uh, infrastructure is going to have to happen is, is broadband. I know everybody's very concerned about 5G, and legitimately so. Mm-hmm. Security online is going to be a huge issue. There was some appalling number I saw yesterday or the day before about education uh, in America of something like 50, 50 something million students mm. and and 25 to 30 million of those do not actually have broadband access. Mm. Now that's an equation that is intolerable. Mm. Um, so I, I think I think we've got when I said being sort of glib to your, your questions, I think it's all just going to move forward and and hopefully Hopefully, right now, because of the compelling crisis, and and I do not take this crisis lightly. I live in a very protected world and have been extremely careful. You know, I I am not hearing sirens every day. I'm not in New York. I'm I'm over here in in Zurich. Mm. I live outside of the city. You know, I I'm in a very controlled environment where mm. I'm safe and I can step back watching all of this every day on the news i'm a bit of a news junkie uh you know and keeping keeping track of it is is an is an appalling heartbreaking uh story and i don't want to seem to anybody that i'm taking that lightly i'm i'm glad to concentrate on 
what this can mean to our world, but in, but in fact, we are still deep in human misery. And, and so everything, back to also the Idajo, although we don't talk about that a lot when we do these shows, and I don't, you know, it's not like, oh, well, let's play something sad, because the idea that we're available is because now it's time to be available. And mm. we're available a little earlier than we would have liked to clean it up and be, because it just is needed. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's all very valid. But I think that it, now is the time why we are still in a forced kind of slow motion to get some of the basics right, because if the lid comes up and it becomes lids comes off, and it becomes a a fast moving business model, then you're going to have a lot of decisions made on the on the economics, i.e., profit, which would be sad. Mm. You know, let's let's get this right. Let's get this right for once. Mm. I just found a wonderful quote that you um, have said about song. Um, you say that song is a metaphor of the imagination. It is poetic thought encapsulated in music. Poetry is driven by the basic instinct to tell the story of existence. Explain. <laughs> well, it um, seems rather obvious to me. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I'll get into this on, on Thursday, I, I suppose. I, wanna, I yeah. don't want to be too... I, I, my wife is always saying, you know, don't, don't get too... Uh, you know, too crazy. I think, but people want to know that. If you read that, those sentences, it would seem obvious. But breaking it down, if you, the word metaphor, what it, metaphor is essentially something that stands for something else. Mm-hmm. And so, if if song is a metaphor of the imagination, then let's look at the components of song. And when I say song, and in this particular context, I'm talking about classical song or what, mm-hmm. what has always been known as art song. Yeah, but I don't like the phrase art song not because it it seems stuffy, but because the process of art or artification is a is the preservation of something. Mm. It's the the capturing of something, and and even Wagner talked about that. Art is a transcender. Art makes something possible to observe. But what in song is possible? Well, let's let's just look at ourselves. If we, as a human being, we have probably three essential ways to make our imagination public. We can say it, sing it, chant it, whatever. Mm-hmm. We can write it down, and, and that impulse has been from stone walls and caves through parchment to paper to digital ink. You know, what, what, that, that, that metaphor, whatever's, whatever's written, whatever you write from yourself as your thoughts, even just what, I, what you just read as my quote, is a metaphor of what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right? So we have this, and then, and then the, and the, and the third way I was going to say is that, is that we can gesticulate. We can probably, we can probably dance it. I mean, I, I'm sitting all sorts of images of charades and so forth. But essentially, essentially as human beings, we are going to write it down in some recognizable hieroglyphic or we're going to say it and manifest it in some understandable language. And this is where it gets fun, because I would say that one of those understandable languages is, in fact, music. Mm-hmm. And, and if, you, if you... It is understandable, about, but it isn't. Well, music has, music has definite syntax, and, and we've been playing with the structure of music for some time very seriously over the last 150 years, but 
music has a kind of syntax. We have cadence. We as human beings respond to, you know, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knows there's something else. And, and so we, we, we respond to that. But, but let's get back to the breaking out of the metaphor. So if you've got the metaphor of the imagination in words, and, and those words, those symbols of thought, and by the way, poetry is not information. Mm-hmm. It's informative, but it is essentially meant to poetry and, and all of its guises, and I think I can be horribly general in this way. Poetry is meant to ignite in the reader an association of contexts. And, and that's what makes poetry so powerful. And when I'm teaching young singers, if you've ever seen a master class, I, I very often say, don't give me CNN, give me poetry. Don't give me information. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't need, you know, I don't, and, and that's a physical thing, but it's, it's, it, it's more about, my, my colleague Robert Hall had a wonderful quote in, in German. He said, he said, Lieder hat mehr mit Aussagen zu tun als Erzählung. The song has more to do with what is being said or, or, or postulated than actually the information it's conveying. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you can break that down to ballads and whatever else, and there's mm-hmm. all sorts of variations of that. But essentially, you've got this metaphor of the imagination that has become a descriptive word. And out of that descriptive word are these marvelously talented people who hear in their own lives and their own particular talents a language called music. And that language of music is very often more, when inspired by text, is more about what the composer feels to be the emotional context of what is being described or, or the, as we say in German, the Zustand, the, the status of that person as they say that text, the Wanderer an der Mund, the, the wanderer singing to or reflecting on. And we don't really know what that title means other than there's a, there's a moon involved. Has he just gone? Has it just rained? Is it is it night? Is it not night? Is it early in the morning? Have they been going a long time? Are they speaking to the moon? Is the moon speaking to them? Are they speaking to somebody, hoping somebody else will look at the moon? I mean, there's just all sorts of ways that this wander on the moon can mean something, but it meant something to Schubert. That obviously is a kind of motion. Uh, in my description, but that's some kind of wandering idea. So Schubert would like to invite us into Goethe's poem to understand that this process of reflection of the moon is part of a journey, right? So just those two things invite one's, any person listening to that or getting acquainted or hearing for the first time invites them into their own world of associations of having ever walked anywhere, having ever looked at the moon before, having ever asked existential questions, having ever felt good or bad or wonderful or whatever. And, and all of that is completely the imagination of the person ingesting, digesting that musical poetic moment. Ergo, metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation of metaphor, if you will. in a a song. And what I do as an artist is not tell anybody about the moon or the wandering. I simply make that thing that, that Goethe thought up and Schubert put into a musical context audible. And the journey 
you take yourself. And mm. this is what I think is so powerful about song. Because if you, if you look at that process in any epoch of any culture, and they all, we all have songs forever and will ever, is that not one of the most beautiful identifiers of any culture you want to get to know? Or, or, or be associated with or, or have any idea about? The idea that, that a song enriches someone's own successive heartbeat moments is kind of obvious if you just take the, the, the conversation that we've just had or the, or the description I've just given. And that's why I think it's important to understand when you're listening to very constructed songs like poetry set to music, that there are layers that have been specifically layered to invite one into their own experience. Uh, and, and that layering and that information can sometimes seem daunting or to the general listener, they think, oh, I, you have to know too much to get into leader or, or mm -hmm. you know, that. And, and I'm always trying to find ways to say, no, that's not true. Uh, it's no, it's no, it's no more or less true than listen to Paul Simon sing an African song with the Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Who's who's that? And who's that? And who's that? And what's that? And who are they singing that? And what does that word mean? It's the same thing, mm -hmm. you know. Great songs are great songs. You were talking about the the Paul Simon reference there, so I wonder. A, a lot of people talk about leader one of the ways that they explain it is that it's not dissimilar to listening to a pop song well i think that i, th I think it is, it is essentially very true yeah i, I just i it, and i have no problem with that but yeah. it's, it's in the same you know it, it's it's this there is a there's a difference to the lacme theme in the opera than when it's the british airways commercial yeah exactly <laughs> we have to be i think we just simply have to embrace that human beings have many layers in of themselves of intent and ergo comprehension. I can be as I can be as as captivated by a Robert Ludlum book as a Agatha Christie novel mm -hmm. or a, a, a Cormac McCarthy or a Harold Pinter or a or a Shakespeare. Uh, and that doesn't mean that that one is better than the other, but but the context of how they perhaps just listing those off. Is, is perhaps different access points or different associabilities. Um, I'm a great movie fan. I don't want to know how movies are made because I, I like, I need, I need that suspension of disbelief oh. <laughs> to, to just, you know, go there. Um, but, you know, I can like everything from Die Hard with Bruce Willis to, to, you know, I saw just a beautiful movie uh, the other night called The Song of Names. Okay. Uh, which is a, actually a novel written by Norman Lebrecht, of all people. Oh, that's uh, a beautiful, wow. beautiful movie. Um, so, I mean, my point is that there's different points of association. If to say that a Goethe Schubert song is no different than a Paul Simon song is not completely inaccurate. Paul Simon <laughs> is a kind of Schubert of his time, uh, in the same way that Robert Stoltz in Vienna was a kind of Schubert of his time, and more more closely associated because of the of the Austrian root and and this deep belief in melody. Um, where, where things get a little bit more complicated, if you will, is, is if you already have a poem. Poem doesn't need music, and music doesn't need poetry. Mm -hmm. um, the best, I, and this is where I disagree with some of my colleagues, which is a fun discussion to have, to say that the best of poetry, the best of Goethe, 
in the best of of hands of Schumann and, and Wolf and Schubert, you know, that, that, that sometimes they got to write something that, that that's actually going to be the best of songs and that these, a secondary poet can never be a best song, I think is not right. I, I, I don't agree with that. I think that the, I think that the metaphoric conversation between the musical idiom and the poetic intent is what defines for me a great, a great song, an ergo, a great reflective moment. I'm perhaps slightly more ecumenical than some of my, my colleagues. But what I really wanted to say was, was a Paul Simon doesn't just to stay with him. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of Paul Simon. I'm a huge fan of Sting. I think these guys oh, are too. just great songwriters. And, and, you know, John Prine just died, who is a great, you know, uh, folk singer. You know, I love folk music. I, I'm, a, I'm a closet country western freak. Uh, I think that the series that, that Ken Burns just did on PBS, The History of Classical Music, is or country music, is not in and of itself just, just beautiful. It's also a kind of social history, sociological history of the United States of America. And I would, I would encourage everyone to watch it. It's absolutely wonderful. But how words are constructed to become the stuff that inspires music is a very complicated, in a good way, I mean, just a very complex forest, if you will, of many different kinds of trees. And Paul Simon, I would, I would never say that he spends less time coming up with his turns of phrases for his songs than, than Goethe did for his poem. Am I saying he's a kind of Goethe? No, but I, I don't think that, I don't think we're either denigrating either Goethe or Paul Simon by simply saying the process of choosing what words represent what you're thinking is what interests me. Goethe, as a, one of the greatest minds in all of history and one of the greatest poets in all of history, uh, but at a particular time, the Goethean time had a, a particular set of tools in which those choices made the largest impact. And, and that's also part of his time. Even by the end of his century, the 19th century, that set of tools had modified seriously in language. And the use of Goethe tools in the musical language had, had progressed and changed significantly. And I just find the wonder at that conversation, the wonder of how that manifests itself in any particular slot or, of time, the, the enormously interesting, personally gratifying, and yes, entertaining uh, uh, phenomenon of, of art song or classic song. So, you know, am I going to sing, you know, country western music? Yes, I, I've sung, obviously, I hum along and sing and so forth. Is that what I do as a profession? No. Is that what I've trained for? No. Is it the same thing as what I do? Yes, from a heart standpoint, but, you know, style and, and connectivity. It's interesting that every episode of Ken Burns' um, series, and also his series on jazz, which is also a, a history of, of American music in America, if, if I had a dime for every time one of the great artists talks about telling the story, being real, being you, making the moment audible for your public, you know, I, I would be a little happier about this, about this unemployment, <laughs> unemployment time. I don't mean to be silly about the metaphor, but that's what we do. And in classical music, I have to admit 
I, I think that we are our own worst enemy sometimes. There are, there are so many fascinating levels of the creation of of what we call classical music from the very smallest musical elements to the compositional styles and techniques and voices and epochs, relationship to instrumentation, relationship to words, metaphors, all that it's very easy to get caught up in the weeds. And it's very easy to get, and certainly in vocal music, let's stay with that. You, you must be unbelievably detailed in your sensitivity. Your, your level of minutia as a study process really must be significant to understand classic song. And yet the moment of performance, that moment of audibility where you choose to allow yourself to make all of these minutia spontaneously accessible, <laughs> spontaneous is a nonsense word in what I do, uh, <laughs> is, is the great achievement. It must be about that moment. It's what Barenboim says, you know, in classical music, it's not, it's not one for all. Yeah. It's all for one. Everything in your life as an artist up to the point of when you decide to make that music audible is what goes into making that music audible. And, and I, the first, there were some early glimpses of that. I've carried that, I've carried that awareness from my earliest days with Hanukkah and certainly with Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein was the most prodigious intellect I ever met in my life. And yet, he was as vulnerable a performer as, as any 30-year-old baritone singing with him. You know, it's just, it was an amazing experience. The, the unending questioning of, of truth that I learned from Nicholas Hanenkuhl, uh and, and in his school of thought is, you know, you, you, can't, you can't know enough. You can't, you, it's, not about, it's not about taking all of that on stage. It's about, it's about enriching your the things you've forgotten. I, I, like to I like to describe really wonderful people as he or she has forgotten more than I can learn. Uh, I sometimes use it as a sword in saying, and when somebody's being terribly judgmental about, about gargantuan experiences and, and experienced artists that I adore and say, I'm sorry, that person has forgotten more than you will ever learn. So, you know, have some respect and shut up and realize how how limited you are. And, and I say that to myself as well, you know, be, you know, I, I, the, the world of criticism has become quite banal in my opinion. I'm not complaining about being badly criticized. I'm, I'm complaining that criticism that is not born of a discussion or informative dialogue just doesn't interest me. Um, and, and this sort of pronouncement industry that we have mm. doesn't really serve anybody's purpose other than, some very, very superficial button that might be pushed by someone yeah. who doesn't know what they're reading about anyway. But yeah. that's another question we don't need to get into. And I'm not there to criticize critics. I'm just saying they have been boxed into a, a world that is not really very pleasurable for themselves either. I think that there is that there is that balance, isn't there, between constructive criticism and then destructive criticism, isn't there? And I guess also music critics, it's their job well, I, I don't think that constructive criticism does not mean that there are not serious negative issues. But, but also there must be constructive criticism, it seems to me, also implies a certain humility from the person doing criticism that in their acquired sense of knowledge and position, that they simply see and hear something different than what's been given them. 
And, and if it goes so far that it really seems to be on the other side of what's acceptable, fair enough. That's, that's their opinion. That's why they're there. But I think they need to take us with us, take us with them in, in that process. You know, when you, see, when you see criticism that is just deeply personal or, or terribly offhanded, Mm-hmm. Oh, that person just didn't get the fourth movement of the of the first symphony of Mahler or something. I just like you want to say, have you ever looked at the fourth <laughs> fourth movement? I mean, getting out of criticism, it's like it's like when people you know when people talk about Mahler's life and the last minute question. Well, well, I understand in nineteen oh one, Mahler had this brush with death, uh, and then goes on. What do you think? And I said, well, well, wait a minute, wait, what does brush with death mean? I mean, death is a big word that kind of goes boom, and brush is something we just sort of, well, you know, you know, yes, there's this wonderful story you can read in biographies where the doctor said, you know, to Mahler after he almost bled to death one night, that was a close call, Herr Mahler. Uh, now, do you think that's just something he got up and had his Zemmel and coffee the next morning and said, well, I'm glad I, I got through that? You know, for, for one thing, the idea of brushing against anything in a context of a Gustav Mahler intellect is impossible. It either was a monumental life-orienting occasion or something that became a musical element in his mind, or it just didn't stick on his radar. And, and that's the first thing you have to understand about something like a Mahler or several other of these huge intellects. You know, Einstein having a brush with his... I mean, it's just, it's just disrespectful to say these kinds of things, but it's the kind of language we've gotten very used to. And, and, and this is what I think we have to be careful with in, in classical music. I think we have to spend as much time as we need to and as open and as humble as possible to simply say that the world that I live in is a very complex, wonderful world. And, and here are the elements that have gone into making that thing happen. And, and if somebody wants to have that conversation, I would like to make it as painless as, simp- as, as possible and yet leave all of the doors open that should that person want to keep drilling down there's just an endless fascination of, of detail that should be gone there. When I perform, and this is something you have to learn over the years, and, I, and I'm sure that I'm, I, I was very guilty of it in my younger years, you can overthink things. Well, you're guilty in any years, but you, you want to be, you should seem spontaneous, I guess. It should very often, especially in song, it should have a feeling that, that, that you're sort of, that it's being invented and sung music at the same time. Now, having said that, is that I'm not a big stickler on, on leaders, uh, leader Abner being, being memorized. Um, you know, and, I, and this is something that with Hanukkah, for instance, I mean, it's not my music. I mean, Hanukkah knew Bach better than anybody in his age and his time, but he would never dream of going on stage without the score. It would just be disrespectful. And he didn't want his singers not to have their score with him. We are, we are referencing something that's been created to create a moment that we all inhabit. And that habit is not, that inhabit is not my moment. It's Bach's moment. It's Schubert's moment. It's Schumann's moment. Does that mean that a Winterreise is better with music or without music? It's a big question. I, I personally probably would have a problem. I've done, I've done Winterreise with a, with a book in my hand, especially if I'm in between things. And, and you reference it, you tell it, and it had a different kind of storytelling thing. Ballads, I think you should have the music there. You're telling a story. You're, you're, you're reading a book. I, I think we should be in the leader world. I would very much like to see us open our, our perspectives of what is memorized or not memorized or what. You shouldn't be reading music. You should just because you can read it from the, and that's, that's, sort, of, that's sort of boring. It, there should be some sort of digestion 
ergo a choice on your part as artists to make that and those elements audible for the purpose of engaging another human being's imagination, ergo path to their own sense of who they are in, in life. That's essentially, I think, what music and I as, a, as an artist am here for. Amazing. I mean, there's obviously so much I could ask you, but I know that you've got things to do. But I just want to ask you, you just very briefly, um, I was going to ask you about career highlights. I know that you said you had the great privilege of working with Leonard Bernstein. What would he make of this new remake of West Side Story that's going to take place? I mean, will you go and see it? Oh, I haven't seen it. What, what, what is that? Uh, I saw, I saw I a marvelous West Side Story, a new production, but also very much down the, down the in uh, Glimmerglass last summer, which I thought was one. And it's a marvelous score. It's a fantastic piece. What are you talking about? Um, so I know that they've been doing um, a revival on Broadway. It's very modern, very contemporary. And th then also the remake that Steven Spielberg is doing. Well, Steven Spielberg, is, is, he doing, is he doing that or is he doing, I understand there's a bi-opera, bi bi-some biographical film being done on Leonard Bernstein himself. Is that no, it? it's a complete remake. All right. Yeah. Well, look, you know, Lenny, Lenny remade Romeo and Juliet, so why not? You know, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, you know, I, I th I th the people you have just talked about are some of the greatest imaginative artists, producers of our time. Uh, will I go see it if I can? Yes. It's, it's like going to Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, Hamilton just blew my mind. I mean, it was... I made did I, all I could. Luca and I went, my, my son-in-law, and, and kind of <laughs> we got to the mission. We kind of were like this, and I just looked at him and I said, "I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to have to learn something like that in my life. I'm too old for this. I cannot <laughs> learn that." Uh, we had a good laugh about it. It's very, very complicated music. Seems so incredibly spontaneous, but it is born of a of a detail that is staggering which is a good lesson, you know, it's caught this a wonderful public imagination and that's fabulous and it should be, and it's a wonderful story. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I would like to, I hope that there's a sequel called Madison because I think uh, James Madison had a, a profound influence on the sensibilities of, of our nation and its birthing and, and growing process that we would do well to re-embrace today. He had, some wonderful and very prescient observations on the on the Achilles heel, the danger of democracy, which is always going to be demagoguery, the danger of mass mentality, which is always going to be populism. populism. So I, th I think James Madison saw in in this wonderful libertarian democracy the the some of the envelopes that we're pushing on right now, if you will, uh, of liberty versus security, populism versus access, voting rights versus vote getting, <laughs> if you will. Um, so again, the Hamilton story is wonderful. Madison story is wonderful. Anything that'll reconnect us with our founding fathers can't be wrong. Uh, I've heard that there's a new, uh, that someone has bought the operatic rights for Lincoln and the Bardo, which is a wonderful story. I thought the Spielberg Lincoln film was, was wonderful. 
it's, it's curious to me that no one's tried to make a, a major film with Walt Whitman, which I think would be a really wonderful film. So, you know, these are, these are I think that something like, it, it was like when Jonathan Miller turned Tosca on its, or uh, Rigoletto on its head mm, and, mm. and made it Little Italy and, and you know, crime mafia, small mafia in Little Italy in New York. Uh, everybody was appalled at this sort of dress. I found it very consistent. I found it very um, consequent, as it were. Uh, I, I, I didn't think that it, I didn't think that it didn't, I didn't think it was telling a different story. There are other producers today that are very well known where you can feel that they sit down with a piece that they find very attractive in opera and their first question is, well, what if that character wasn't actually that? And that kind of process doesn't particularly interest me. What interests me are these very, very talented producers who see the archetypes of, of personalities that may very well be captured in a particular context of the 19th century writer writing about the 18th century, but the archetype is, is a kind of timeless personality that could very well be seen to be manifested in a contemporary kind of personality that we would know today. That I find very interesting because it leaves the, it leaves the, the heartbeat and the construction of the opera intact, but can somehow perhaps bring it more, more forward. I personally would like to see more uh, modern opera written. Um, and I think especially in America where, where we have allowed, uh, again, out of the academic forces of the 50s and the 60s, it's now okay to write a melody again. The polytonalities are accepted. Broadway's gotten more sophisticated. The opera is getting more, more ecumenical, as it were. Uh, you know, I think these are very good and very good and positive movements. I would like to see more pieces. I would like to see more. Uh, and that's why I, I'm, you know, I did two world premieres last season and I'm doing, I should have done another one this year. You know, that's, I, I'm very committed to that. I think that's very, very interesting. It's not easy work, but it's ex- extremely uh, rewarding work. So there you have it. That was my interview with Thomas Hampson. Wasn't that absolutely amazing? Thank you very much for listening once again. There's a whole archive of interviews that I've done over the last 18 months or so with artists, creatives, practitioners, as well as musicologists. So do check those out. Meanwhile, um, I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next interview, which should be within the next fortnight or so. But in the meantime, stay safe, 